Okay, our subject is eschatology generally, but specifically post-millennialism. But before we actually address post-millennialism, I think it's necessary to talk about uh, some of the broader issues as a matter of introduction, but also address the essentials, essentials of eschatology. That phrase, that word essential, might seem like an oxymoron when we're talking about eschatology, but we'll explain why we have to understand that there are some essentials in discussing eschatology. Firstly, if you are following along, the introduction. Eschatology is the study of last things. Last things, also known as end times. End times, final things, last things. Historic or orthodox Christianity espouses the doctrines of the second coming of Jesus Christ in bodily form to deliver his people, punish the wicked, destroy the world, and reign for eternity. These are some of the fundamental historic orthodox beliefs that Christians have always professed, unless, of course, they are liberal Christians. And and then in that case, they're not really Christians. You cannot be a liberal Christian. Christian, that that also is a contradiction in terms. Related to these beliefs are the last days, such as what are the last days? What does the Bible mean by that phrase? The rapture, the relationship between Israel and the church, and the millennium, a thousand-year period, literal or figurative. Some of these beliefs do not undermine biblical doctrines, whereas others do. Some don't undermine or contradict the Bible, but other doctrines within these beliefs, they do undermine, they do contradict the Bible. A few of the tenets of post-millennialism and pre-tribulational pre-millennialism, also called dispensationalism or dispensational premillennialism, are indeed... Heretical. Remember what I just said. It says a few of the tenets. Not everything that they believe, but a few of the things that they believe in post-millennialism and pre-tribulational pre-millennialism, or simply dispensationalism, a few of their beliefs, they do undermine the clear teaching of Scripture and essential, fundamental doctrine. They do. To study the various viewpoints, the approach below categorizes them around the second coming of Jesus Christ and the millennium. Which approach that we've taken here is not a new approach. It's usually the approach taken throughout history whenever theologians and pastors, scholars, they address this subject. It has to be centered around the second coming and the millennium because those are the two main issues of disagreement or controversy. And that's why we have to do it like that. The Bible also emphasizes these doctrines, especially the second coming. Therefore, what will actually happen is the natural question. What will actually happen when Jesus returns? And it relates to the millennium. Okay, now, we've used here a few big words, long words. Post-millennial pre-tribulational, pre-millennial, we'll, we'll use words like amillennial, dispensational, historic premillennial, 
These are various terms used in this study. We should not be alarmed and we should not avoid the use of terms or terminology, even if they are long words and big words. We use them in our context. We use them not to show forth our academic prowess. We're not showing forth how intellectual we are or how we can rattle off certain words from our lips. The purpose is not that. I know some people study and talk about these matters for that purpose. But we're not doing that. We're doing it because we need to be able to explain what we're talking about. We need to be able to explain. And it always takes the use of words, the use of names, the use of nomenclature, labeling system. There's always the need for that. Every profession, every line of work has their vocabulary. Carpentry has it. Car mechanics has it. Aerospace has it. Whatever you're talking about, everybody has a collection of terminology specific to that field. Theology has it, and even specifically eschatology, a subgroup within theology, it has its own terminology. So we must become familiar with it. We shouldn't um, shirk it, walk away from it, just understand what it is and try to avoid confusion as much as possible. And that's our purpose here, to explain in clear terms, to avoid confusion. And after things have been clarified, then we take what has been clarified with the clear teaching of Scripture and say, is this scriptural or not? Is this specific point biblical or not? If it is, then embrace it. If it's not, then reject it. All right? So now, having said that, Essentials of Eschatology. This title, Essentials of Eschatology, this expression might sound like this is a foreign concept. This is something that is completely averse to eschatology. Haven't we been taught all these years that when we talk about eschatology, it's all up for grabs? It doesn't matter what you believe. It'll all pan out. If, if they say, are you, uh, they ask, some people ask, are you a premillennialist, a postmillennialist, an amillennialist? And then they, it, the, the one who's queried will say, well, it doesn't matter to me. It's all going to pan out. So I'm a pan-millennialist. <laughs> it's all going to work out and it doesn't matter. But does the Bible actually take that approach? Does the Bible actually say that, that it doesn't matter? If the Bible says that some things do matter in relation to future events, then we should believe those things. And if the Bible clearly teaches those doctrines, then those doctrines become essential. Not non-essential, not negotiable, not relativistic, not take it or leave it, not a matter of preference or just your opinion, your viewpoint. It can't be that way. Some things are harder to understand in relation to eschatology, but other things are not hard to understand. And as I point out these 15 essentials, and there may be more that I might have left out or something that could be expanded upon in a better way, whatever the case, these are some of the ones that I have noticed based on Scripture and the obvious interpretation. If you ask anybody who has read the Bible, is some student of the Bible, does the Bible teach this or that? And in most of these essential points, you're going to see, everybody will say, yes, of course it teaches that. And then if it does teach that, 
The issue then becomes, then why can one say, I am a post-millennialist? If the Bible obviously teaches the very opposite of one of the central tenets of post-millennialism, then how could you say that you're a post-millennialist? When one of your main foundations, one of your main legs is a, a lame leg, you can't walk on it. You shouldn't be calling yourself that. That's the reason we need to understand what these essentials are, okay? So first one, number one, um, the italicized and capitalized words are there for emphasis. And here we have the definite return of Christ. A definite return. What does the word definite mean? It's not up for grabs, right? Which means that in liberal Christianity, again, that's a contradiction in terms, but for the sake of identification, liberal Christians deny the definite return of Christ. They deny that. They say he's not returning. There is not, no visible return of Christ. Well, it also calls it here the return of Christ. When we say return, return means he came one time, he's coming a second time. Right? He's coming a second time. Not coming a second time, a third time, a fourth time. He's coming a second time. That's why a synonym of the definite return of Christ, or simply return of Christ, is second coming of Christ. There's a first coming in bodily form on the earth. That was his incarnation 2,000 years ago. And then there's the second coming, a visible bodily return. The second coming is a second coming. Not the third, not the fourth, not the fifth, or any number of times. It's the second coming. The Bible only knows of the first coming and the second coming in bodily form, permanent bodily form, right? Do we understand what we're talking about? That's the first essential. Now, why do we need to believe that? Why should we believe it? John chapter 14 John 14, verses 1 to 3. John 14, 1 to 3. Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. The point of comfort here has to do with the fact that Christ will come again. That's the second coming. Second coming. He will come again. And when he does, he'll receive us. And when he receives us, we will be with him forever. Is that not the essential point he's making here? In John 14, 1 to 3. He will come again, receive us, and we'll be with him forever. Matthew 24. Matthew 24, verses 1 to 3. Matthew 24, 1 to 3. Verse 1. And Jesus came out from the temple and was going away when his disciples came up to point out the temple buildings to him. And he answered and said to them, do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone here shall be left upon another 
which will not be torn down. And as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming? And the end of the age? Their question is actually three questions, right? Their opportunity, private opportunity to address him involves three questions. When will these things be? What things? He just said the temple is going to be torn down. And what will be the sign of your coming? That's number two. And then number three, and of the end of the age. What will be the sign? What, how will we know that these things will happen or when they will happen? Is that not what they're asking? Yes. Then we pick it up at verse 29. 29 to 31. 29 to 31. But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet and they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of the sky to the other. He says there will be this period of tribulation. Signs in the heavens will occur. And also, the sign of the Son of Man will appear, verse 30, in the clouds. He will come visibly in the clouds. And in 31, His angels will gather together His elect from the four winds. His elect will be gathered. Didn't John 14 say that when He comes again, He will receive us to Himself that where he is, there we may be also. This verse also says that when he comes, the angels will collect them all and we will all be with Christ. He's going to receive us in that way. He's talking about his return, his second coming. This involves receiving his elect, his church, us being with him, at that time, at the time that he returns. Second Thessalonians chapter 2, 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 1. Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him. What's the subject of this chapter? The coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him. The subject is his coming, meaning his second coming, and our gathering together to him. We will be assembled to him when he comes again. That's the subject of this chapter. The two are bound up together. He returns and we're (coughs) gathered to him. The Bible definitely teaches his second coming. A real second coming. It is a second coming. Come again. Not come again and again in different ways. But come again. And we will be with him and with him forever. Right? Number two. Point number two. The bodily visible return 
of Christ. The bodily and visible. It's both in his body of flesh and bones, resurrected, immortal body, and it's visible. We will see him with our eyes. It's not going to be invisible, immaterial, spiritual, figurative, symbolic. It's nothing like that. It says it's a bodily and visible return of Christ. Is that true? Is that in the Bible? Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, verses 9 to 11. Acts 1, verse 9. Remember, he has risen from the dead. He has been appearing to his disciples over a period of 40 days before he ascends. Now he ascends, and that is described. Notice what Jesus says about this, and actually the the angels, what they say. Verse 9, Acts 1, 9. And after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky, while he was departing, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. And they also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. He came from heaven. He will go back into heaven. He ascended into heaven bodily. They saw him go up into the sky with their own eyes. And then he will descend bodily and they will see him with their own eyes. That's what the two angels, the two men said to the disciples. Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, verses 20 to 21. Philippians 3, 20 to 21. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. We are eagerly awaiting Christ. Verse 20 says, that's the return of Christ. Verse 21, he's going to transform our humble body in conformity to his glorious body. He has a glorious physical body immortal body. That's what he has. When he returns, ours will be transformed to be like his. It's all physical. It's not merely visionary, symbolic, figurative. It's an actual physical body. Bodily and visible return and our immortal body is intertwined with his return. When he returns, that's when our bodies will be transformed and conformed to his. Number three, point number three. The rapture is the second coming. The rapture is the second coming. The rapture is not a different event. It's not a different uh, occasion from the second coming. The rapture is the second coming. 
These are biblical words, but they must be understood, biblically speaking, not according to one's theology or the bias of one's theology. How can we prove that the rapture is indeed the second coming or the second coming is when the rapture takes place? First Thessalonians, first Thessalonians chapter four, 13 to 18. First Thessalonians four, 13 to 18. This is the central rapture passage for rapture proponents. This is the passage. It is the longest passage and the one that they usually cite to prove the rapture as though the rapture is different from the second coming. This is the passage, 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord shall not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. What is our hope? When our loved ones in Christ die, our hope is that we will be reunited with them, and that takes place when the Lord returns. Is this passage addressing the return of Christ? Verse 15 says, the coming of the Lord, the coming of the Lord. Throughout this letter, 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians, he has been addressing the coming of the Lord. He's not talking about the second, third, fourth, fifth different comings. He's talking about the only one that is the second coming, the second coming. There is no modification to the second coming. It is the second coming that is one of the main issues that he wants to clarify to the Thessalonians in both the first letter and the second letter because false teachers and false prophets have been misleading them and disrupting them and causing discomfort, causing anxiety among them about future events. He's clarifying and saying, no, this is what will happen when Jesus comes again the coming of the Lord. What will happen? The dead in Christ shall rise. If we are alive, when that happens, we will be transformed, meet them and Christ in the air and always be with the Lord. And he's coming in the clouds, as it says. Verse 17, in the clouds. The reason this passage is the rapture passage for rapture proponents has to do with verse 17. In verse 17, it says, caught up together, shall be caught up together. 
The phrase to be caught up is taken, or the word rapture is taken from this phrase based on the Latin word to be caught up because the Latin word that relates to the word rapture, rapture is basically a transliteration or almost a transliteration of the Latin word to be caught up. So rapture proponents say rapture is something different from the second coming based on this passage. Yet this passage says they're caught up and this happens at the coming of the Lord. So to be caught up or to be raptured is the same as to be joining Christ when Jesus returns. It doesn't say that there is a space of time, um, three and a half years, seven years, indefinite number of years. It doesn't say anything like that. It's saying it's one and the same event, one and the same return. That's when we are gathered to him. We assemble at that point when he returns. Point four, there is no secret rapture. No secret rapture. In 1 Thessalonians 4, this is one of our passages to prove it. 1 Thessalonians 4, does it convey any secrecy in this passage? No, it does not. He's saying in this passage, we do not want you to be uninformed, so they should be fully aware of the situation, the events, the circumstances, the signs. Then he also says in verse 15, it's the coming of the Lord. If we assume the coming is the same as Matthew 24, John 14, Acts chapter 1, if we assume these passages we've already read, if we assume it's the same, then that means it's going to be obvious because those other passages clearly say it will be obvious. And then in verse 16 it says, he's going to descend with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God. These are things that are clearly audible. It's going to be obvious, not secret. It's going to be open, not closed and covert. It's not that way. We'll be caught up to meet him in the the air. Well, visibly, normally speaking, visibly, people, unbelievers and believers alike, we can see each other. And if one of us or a group of us were to be caught up, raptured up into the air... Wouldn't people suddenly notice that we're gone and look up? Right? So they're going to see that we visibly are gone. Furthermore, we didn't read chapter 5, 1 Thessalonians 5. He continues this. And notice, notice in chapter 5, 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 1. Now, as to the times and the epics, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you, For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like birth pangs upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness that the day should overtake you like a thief. It'll overtake them like a thief in that it's unexpected. But even when 
victims of robbery and thievery, when they experience it, when it's robbery, it's usually in your presence and it's violent. Thievery is usually in secret, but once that happens, you know it has happened and you can trace what has happened. So it's not completely that you're in the dark, not usually. Sometimes it is, but not usually. But in this case, he's saying believers are not going to be caught or taken like a thief in the night. The unbelievers are going to be that way, caught off guard, not us. So it's not going to be completely secret and mysterious to us. Right. Number five, point number five, the date, day and hour are unknown. There is an unknown date day, and hour, an unknown time. Matthew, Matthew 24, 36. Matthew 24, verse 36. We'll read 36, 42, and 50. Matthew 24, 36. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. Verse 42. Therefore, be on the alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. And 50. The master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour which he does not know. The date, day, and hour are unknown. This is an important doctrine because some think they can pinpoint when it will happen. They can judge the number of years, the number of days, so forth, and be precise. Some have done it, many have done it over the years, and even some within evangelicalism try to do so. And they're, often, they're always wrong. We know they're always wrong. It has happened, and it still happens, even in our lifetime. They try to do it. But when they do it, and they seek to prove it from Scripture, you know immediately they are suspect. They are false teachers and false prophets. So don't listen to them. And whatever it is, whatever the eschatology they are promoting, usually it's dispensational eschatology. When they are doing it, you know that it is full of cancer. It's gangrene, so walk away from it. Have nothing to do with it. Number six, point number six. Christ is not coming again at any moment. He's not coming again at any moment. When I say any moment, what I mean by that is, usually people say, Jesus Christ could return in the next second in the next minute, in the next hour, in the next year, in the next 10 years. They try to say any moment means unexpectedly at any moment, literally any moment. And usually they don't say um, in 10 years or 20 years or 30. They just say any moment. But does the Bible say any moment? Does it use the phrase? I don't find the phrase at any moment. If the phrase isn't there, is the concept there? Is the belief there? I don't think it's there either. One proof is 1 Thessalonians 
1 Thessalonians 5. 1 Thessalonians 5. Remember, he says, But you are not of darkness, of the darkness that the thief or the day should overtake you like a thief. It's not going to overtake you because you know you're waiting, you're anticipating the signs of the times. You are living a holy life. You're being godly. You want him to return. So it's not overtaking you suddenly in the sense of any moment. It's overtaking unbelievers because they don't care about it. They don't want to learn about it. And they don't repent of sin and believe in the gospel. It overtakes them that way, but not us. Here's another example of that. John chapter 21. John chapter 21. Remember that there is this dialogue exchange that takes place between Christ and Peter and John and others are present, especially Christ and Peter. Christ predicts the way that Peter will die. In verse 18, John 21, 18. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. What does he mean? Verse 19. Now this he said, signifying by what kind of death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. Peter, verse 20, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who also had leaned back on his breast at the supper and said, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? Peter, therefore, seeing him, said to Jesus, Lord, and what about this man? Jesus said to him, if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. This saying, therefore, went out among the brethren that that disciple would not die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he would not die, but only if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? What are we talking about here? We're talking about Peter being told by Christ that he's going to die this miserable death. He's going to be taken away and put to death in this miserable way. Peter wants to know what's going to happen to John, the beloved disciple. What's going to happen to him? And Jesus says, what is that to you? Basically, mind your own business. If I want John to remain alive until I come, meaning until I come again. Right. At this point, he hasn't ascended into heaven. Jesus hasn't. Jesus has not returned. He says, if I want John to be alive until I come again, what is that to you? My word to you is follow me. You be faithful to me. I have a different plan for John. And you need to basically do what God's will is in your life. Mind your own business for that. And John has to mind his own business for what God's will is in his life. A misinterpretation arose. What was that? The disciples, many of the disciples thought that John was never going to die. 
and Jesus was going to return soon enough, and John was never going to die. But John himself clarifies, no, that's not what Jesus meant. Jesus just said, if. If is a conditional statement. If. If I wanted that scenario to happen, I could make it happen. It didn't mean Jesus was going to make it happen. Well, in all this, does it not imply that between Jesus' prediction, his prophecy to Peter in verse 18, and the time that Jesus ascended into heaven, some time needed to pass? It wasn't any moment that he was going to return. He needed to ascend, right? And then after he ascends, Peter would be tortured, put to death in this way, right? That takes some time. It takes some years. We don't know how long, but it takes some time, right? And if it is between the time of the ascension, AD 30, and the time of Peter's uh, persecution and his execution, which would be in the 60s, AD in the 60s, then at least 30 years passed between this prediction, prophecy, and Peter's martyrdom. 30 years passed. So that wasn't any moment. And then John the Apostle. What actually did happen to him? Church history tells us that he lived until AD 95. AD 95. Jesus did not say here, John, you're going to remain alive until I return, until my coming again. He didn't say that. Some disciples misunderstood that, but he didn't say that. Well, even John didn't see the return of Christ. But John was never told that he would see the return of Christ. Jesus just said he has the power to do whatever he wants in John's life. That's all he meant. So, this is clear evidence that Jesus never taught he would return at any moment. He didn't even mean at any moment after the last apostle dies. He didn't say it that way either. It was never implied. Expectation is there. Um, Holiness and so forth is expected, but it wasn't any moment. Number seven, that brings us to number seven. Holiness is expected now. Holiness now. Not a casual Christianity, not licentiousness, not lawlessness, but holiness now. One passage for this, 1 John, 1 John chapter 2. 1 John 2, 28 to chapter 3, verse 3. 1 John 2, 28 to 3, 3. And now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. At his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of him. See how great a love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we should be called children of God, and such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us, because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we shall be. We know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. What's our subject? 
confidence. Verse 28, when he appears. When he appears is the same as his coming. Verse 28. When he appears, confidence at his coming. And the same is mentioned when he appears in chapter 3, verse 2. What should happen when he appears? We have confidence, not shrink away. Why would we shrink away in shame? Well, if we are living in sin, if we are lawless people, if we are lawless people, antinomian people, if we're like that, then we would shrink away from him in shame. And what else will happen when he returns? It says in verse 2, We know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him just as he is. Just like Philippians 3, 20-21, his glorious body we will see when he returns, and our immortal body will be transformed to be just like his glorious immortal body. That's going to happen. So if he will come back in perfection, spotlessness, glory, then we should live that way in anticipation that the goal God has in us is to be just like Christ in terms of purity, holiness, perfection. Meantime, he says, 1 John 3, 3, everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. Verse 29, 2.29, we practice righteousness. If we're truly born of him, we will practice righteousness and have no shame but confidence when he returns. Holiness is incumbent now for all of us. That means that any view of eschatology that causes its adherence to live a lackluster, casual, fickle, free life is wrong. You know something is woefully lacking in that view of eschatology. Number eight, point number eight. Degeneration occurs now. Degeneration or corruption, evil, um, depravity, wickedness. It happens now. That means between his first coming and second coming, the world does not get better and better. The world is not Christianized. The world does not improve. The world degenerates, becomes more and more corrupt, more and more evil. How do we know that? How do we know that? Second Thessalonians, Second Thessalonians, Chapter 1. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Remember, there are plenty of other verses here, but for the sake of time, I refer you to the notes, and during our next hour and the question hour, we will have opportunity to bring up more verses on the subject. But 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 3. Let's read 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 3 to 12, the rest of the chapter. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as is only fitting, because your faith is greatly enlarged, and the love of each one of you toward one another grows ever greater. 
Therefore, we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which indeed you are suffering. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. And these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. When he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed for our testimony to you was believed. To this end, also, we pray for you always that our God may count you worthy of your calling and fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith with power in order that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. What's the subject matter? It's twofold, at least twofold. One the persecution of the Christian, it will be relieved one day. Yeah. That's the first thing. Right now, we are being persecuted in order that we might be purified, tested, counted worthy, as he says. That's for the Christian now. The second question that he addresses is, when will the Christian be relieved of this persecution? When will he be relieved of the trials? When will these afflictions end? If persecution is now for our purification and to be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, when will that persecution end? The answer, it says in verse 7, to give relief. Relief from what? Persecution. To give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well. Who are the us? Verse 1, Paul and Silvanus and Timothy. Paul and Silvanus and Timothy, or Paul, Silas, and Timothy. To give relief to you and to us as well, when, we ask when. He says when, verse 7. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. When he is revealed, Acts chapter 1, when he descends in bodily form, Matthew 24, immediately they shall see the sign of the Son of Man coming in the clouds, and he will send forth his angels to the elect, to the four winds, to gather his elect, right? That's what he's doing right here too. And when that happens, not only are we relieved, but the wicked are punished. Yeah. Correct? We are relieved and the wicked are punished. Verse 9, they, they will be punished because he returns. Verse 10, when he comes, he comes. That's the return, the second coming. To be marveled at among all who have believed for our testimony to you was believed. He's going to return or come on that day. Well, if the church is being persecuted, does that not include 
one significant element of corruption, depravity, degeneration between the first coming and the second coming. And when he does come in his return, the degeneration will end, the persecution will end, and we'll be with him. Correct? All of these are together here in 2 Thessalonians 1. Number nine, our only hope, comfort, is Christ. Our only hope and comfort in this life is Christ. That sounds elementary, is it not? But it needs to be said. John 14 said, do do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. Right? 1 Thessalonians 4 says, therefore, comfort one another with these words. Our only hope is Christ. Not what Christ will do for us physically in this current world. However, certain elements of eschatology, certain views of eschatology, put hope in the wrong place. They think the world will become more prosperous, more spiritually enlightened, more Christianized, and we Christians will dominate the world. Then Jesus returns. It's the complete opposite. And what they're doing, though they give lip service to Christ and to the cross of Christ, their focus is on how to transform current society. The way the social gospel does. The way the socialist gospel does. The way the health and wealth gospel does. That's the way they are. But our hope is Christ. He's our only hope and comfort now. Now and forever. Amen. Amen. Verse 10. I'm not verse 10. Point number 10. There's only one gospel from Genesis to Revelation. Only one gospel from Genesis to Revelation. The gospel is defined in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 to 4. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried and he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. The scriptures Paul has in view in 1 Corinthians 15 are the scriptures of the Old Testament. In the Old Testament and in the New Testament, both Testaments teach that Old Testament Christians and New Testament Christians are supposed to believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ for their forgiveness of sins. That is the gospel. There aren't different definitions of the gospel that exclude, rightfully exclude, belief in the person of Christ and the work of Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection. No definition of the gospel is a true gospel that excludes those elements of faith in Christ. Yet, yet in eschatology, not everyone believes that there is only one gospel throughout all of history, from Genesis to Revelation, such as dispensationalism. They don't teach that. They teach the very opposite. They say, in our age right now, between the day of Pentecost to the rapture of the church, according to their understanding and their terminology, 
from the day of Pentecost to the rapture of the church, the gospel we believe now is the gospel I just mentioned, 1 Corinthians 15, 1-4. But in the past and after the rapture of the church, the people do not believe what we believe now. They don't believe it to be saved. And they will call it good news. They'll call it gospel. They have different words for it. But they will say that Abraham, Moses, and any post-rapture Christians do not believe in the death of Christ, are not indwelt by the Holy Spirit, not regenerated nor indwelt by the Holy Spirit. These are things that they teach. But we can't do that. And if we do teach that, we are under a curse. Galatians chapter 1. Galatians chapter 1, 6 to 10. I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another. Only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even though we, or an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel contrary to that which we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to that which you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. The gospel he means here that he preached, he's not saying the gospel in the church age, in the age of grace, right now in our period of time. He doesn't mean it that way. Paul the Apostle in Galatians does not mean it that way. We know that because of 1 Corinthians 15, which Paul also wrote. He said that gospel is in the Old Testament. Also in Galatians chapter 3, 6 to 14, he says Abraham believed in that gospel. He believed in the death of Christ, that Christ would come and become a curse for him on the cross. Abraham believed it. Abraham is in the Old Testament, in the book of Genesis, many, many years before. Only one gospel from Genesis to Revelation. And if not, if we say otherwise, we are under a curse. Number 11, point number 11. The way of salvation for Jews or Israel, the nation of Israel, and Gentiles is the same. The way of salvation is the same for Jews and Gentiles. We cannot slice up, dice up, dispensationalize history to such an extent in an unbiblical way that means, that teaches that Jews are saved in a different way than Christians are saved or Gentiles are saved. We are all saved in the same way. How? Repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Acts 20, 21. Acts 20, 21. Repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Jews and Gentiles throughout history, all of human history, are saved that way. Galatians 3 also. Galatians 3, 26 to 29. Galatians 3, 26 to 29. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have, been, have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. 
There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. One way of salvation for Jews and Gentiles. And then further, point number 12. Number 12. There will be the bodily resurrection of the righteous and the wicked. There will be a bodily resurrection of the righteous and the wicked. The Apostle Paul in Acts 24.15 said, There shall certainly be a resurrection of the righteous and the wicked. Certainly be. And he meant bodily resurrection. John chapter 5, Jesus our Lord said, John 5, 28 to 29. John 5, 28. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs shall hear his voice and shall come forth. Those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life, those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. Resurrection of life, Resurrection of judgment. Resurrection of the righteous and the wicked. All who are in the tombs. He means a literal bodily resurrection. And if we take this along with the other passages that mentioned resurrection, such as 1 Thessalonians 4, then it has to be that this happens when Jesus returns. Correct? There cannot be an invisible, immaterial resurrection of the dead in A.D. 70 as some proponents teach. Some proponents of eschatology eschatology teach. They are called preterists. Preterists. This terminology is here in the notes. Preterists. The full preterists believe that the resurrection of the dead occurred. These passages, in one way or another, were fulfilled in A.D. 70, when Jesus came again in judgment in A.D. 70. Number 13. The day of judgment is coming. The day of judgment. Point number 13. This is certainly the case. 2 Corinthians 5, 10. For we all shall appear before the judgment seat of Christ to give an account of the deeds done in the body, whether good or evil. Acts 17, 30 to 31. Now he is commanding that all men everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness, having appointed a man and having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. The day of judgment is real. Liberal Christians deny it, and even many in the post-millennial and dispensational premillennial group, they don't really talk about it very much. They don't really preach it. It's not a part of their preaching and teaching to warn people to repent of sin and prepare for that day, that literal, actual day. And in order to do that, they have to preach the cross. They have to preach the crucifixion of Christ. These are things that go hand in hand and are often minimized and put on the shelf or lip service is given to them 
because they don't really focus on that and they don't focus on it because it doesn't really matter to them. It's not a big deal to them. What's the big deal is we Christianize the world now or we escape the world now and have a better life. That's all they're looking for. Number 14, the lake of fire is real. The lake of fire is real. Jesus said in Matthew 8, 11, in that place there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. He was not speaking figuratively. Matthew 25, 46, and these shall go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Eternal punishment and eternal life. This is essential to believe in eschatology. One and the other. Eternal life and eternal punishment. Not temporary punishment and eternal life. Both are eternal in the same verse. Matthew 25, 46. And lastly, number 15. The heavens... The new heavens and the new earth are real and forever. Forever. They are real and forever. 2 Peter 3.13 But we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Peter does not give us any hint that that new heavens and new earth that they are Temporary, or just a long period of time, and then God has some other plan. But they are permanent and eternal. They are forever. Revelation 21, the same. 21 verse 1, 1 to 4. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready, as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he shall dwell among them. And they shall be his people, and God himself shall be among them. And he shall wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there shall no longer be any death, there shall no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. This is permanent, eternal, it lasts forever. Death and all of the miseries of this world will no longer exist. We shall be with the Lord. He will be with us. We will be immortal, just as the, our Lord Jesus is immortal. And this is the way of the eternal state. Believe it or not, there are some who don't believe that this will happen and that this is eternal. If it does happen, they think it's temporary. But that's not the case. Forever and ever, we shall be with the Lord in this way. All right, so these are some of the essentials of eschatology. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.